Welcome to the Inclusive Schools podcast, forging inclusive pathways by belong. In this podcast, we will unpack themes of bias, prejudice and identity within and outside the domain of education in India. In every episode, we speak to experts who will provide valuable insights in imagining on an inclusive and equitable future of schooling systems in India and contemplate on possible solutions. The title for today's episode is Preserving Tribal Knowledge and Value Systems in Mainstream Education. Cultural racism that goes back to colonial stereotypes still persists in contemporary education systems designed and redesigned in India and around the globe. The 2006 UN Declaration on Rights of Indigenous Peoples underscores the rights of indigenous peoples to establish and control their own educational institutions. This declaration has not yet influenced India's education system. Various educational institutions and organizations which cater to the educational needs of Adivasi children are discriminatory towards tribal knowledge and value systems. In this episode, we talk to Gregory Kajet, a Native American educator whose work is dedicated to honoring the foundations of indigenous knowledge in education. Dr. Kajet has authored five books, including Look to the Mountain and Ecology of Indigenous Education, Ignite the Sparkle, an Indigenous Science Education Curriculum Model, and Native Science, Natural Laws of Interdependence. Stay tuned as we speak with Dr. Kajet about the need to reverse the gaze and begin to learn afresh from tribal communities. Hello, Professor Gregory. I welcome you to today's episode. Uh, it's a pleasure to have this opportunity to share some thoughts across the world in India. Thank you. Professor, among many accomplishments, you are credited with designing a culturally responsive curriculum geared towards the special needs and learning styles of Native American students. Can you share with us what led you to this initiative and its implication for Native American students? Yes, uh, there's a bit of a backstory that I think I should mention that goes along with this this description. Again, I am a Tewa Indian from Santa Clara Pueblo, New Mexico, which is one of uh, six Tewa speaking pueblos uh, which are located north of Santa Fe, New Mexico, which is this, the the capital of the state of New Mexico in the United States. And my original training uh, was as a field biologist. I graduated with my bachelor's degree in field biology. And I was then asked to take a year and teach at a, a school uh, titled the Institute of American Indian Arts. And this is one of uh, three federally uh, chartered schools in the United States that is dedicated to a, a post-secondary degree uh, granting program for Native students. And the Institute of American Indian Arts focuses on vocational arts. And so I was uh, asked to teach at the Institute of American Indian Arts in 1974. I do have a minor in secondary education. And at that time, the Institute of American Indian Arts 
had a high school program, which was a junior and senior high school program accredited by the state of New Mexico. And it acted as a feeder to the post-secondary program at the Institute, which was not accredited, but was the higher education or or the college uh, preparation program at the Institute. So I started in the high school program. At that time, the president of the school was Lloyd New. He had watched me do my student teaching. I had done my student teaching at uh, the Institute as one of the requirements for graduation from my university. And I guess he was very impressed with some of the things that I was bringing forward because of my specialization in plant ecology. I introduced during my student teaching at the Institute a a unit that integrated art with science with the cultural perspectives of the students in my class. The unit was on the uses of plants uh, for food and medicine among Native tribes in the United States. And so apparently he was very impressed. And when the time came, he asked me if I would be interested in postponing my graduate program for a year or two and coming back to the Institute to teach in the high school program. The students had been very alienated from the way that science had been taught at the school at that time. It was a very standard biology program, life science program, uh, chemistry, physics. And the students had complained that they were there to learn about art and not about science. But the science credit was required for the graduation uh, of the students from the high school program. So he took this this perspective of the students to heart, their feeling of alienation from the way that science was being taught their feelings that science had no place in their world. And as artists, why should they study science? And so he asked me if I could create a curriculum uh, which would integrate the science requirements with Native perspectives, the Native cultural histories related to science, along with the different forms and different ways in which science was used in the arts. And so that began my journey back in 1974 to really focus um, my research and my work on creating culturally responsive curriculum that integrated science with art, with cultural perspectives. And the work that I did at the University of New Mexico was a uh, spinoff of that work at the Institute. So I'm currently retired. I'm a professor emeritus from the University of New Mexico, and I continue to work in developing culturally responsive science programming. I have taught many students how to do this as well. So I have many students doing similar work, and that really began, I think, a a very deep uh, exploration of the nature of Native science. Uh, I've written a book called Native Science. Natural Laws of Interdependence, in which I explore the various expressions of indigenous science among North American Indian groups. But of course, all indigenous peoples have uh, forms of science uh, that they practiced. And so although my, my focus has been primarily on American Indian groups, I do acknowledge and certainly want to commend all the other indigenous groups around the world 
for their bodies of knowledge of traditional environmental ecological knowledge and also for their forms of native science. So that's a big long introduction, I guess, response to your question, but I wanted to to give that backstory because I think it's very important to sort of context our conversation this evening. I also wanted to know how did the Native American students actually receive this new form of sciences? Well, as, as I had mentioned, one of the key concerns of the president of the Institute of American Indian Arts who brought me into the faculty was that the students were not passing their science requirement, uh, which meant that many of them were having problems graduating from the high school program. And I guess as, as he inquired into why this was the case, uh, the students began to, to tell him that they felt very alienated from Western science. They felt that Western science was uh, not a part of, of Native culture or tradition, and they felt that they were artists. And, and so the question of why they should learn art became a large controversy, if you will, at the Institute among those students at that time. You know, there is a tremendous amount of science in, in the arts. It really art in many ways, especially as you're creating different art forms, is really applied science. And he also wanted the students to realize that Native people did have a really tremendously rich tradition of what today we call science. They really were not aware of many of their own histories, you know, with regard to how uh, Native peoples uh, really made amazing advances in uh, natural sciences in terms of, let's say, plant cultivation, plant hybridization in South America, the various forms of very sophisticated astronomies that were developed by Native peoples, the technologies of farming, of hunting, fishing, technologies that, that really allowed Native people to have a very sustainable relationship with the places in which they lived, in which they inhabited. So all of these histories were histories that many of the students were not aware of. So when I began to introduce science, Western science concepts, but at the same time, parallel to that, introducing them to the histories that uh, indigenous peoples have with regard to uh, botany, the students really then begin to uh, take it to heart. They begin to, to really become very excited about the kinds of sciences, if you will, indigenous peoples had. They wanted to learn more about those histories, but at the same time, they were learning about uh, Western science concepts, parallel to the ideas and, and the exemplifications of those concepts by, by indigenous peoples, historically and also in, in terms of contemporary times. And then added to that, they began to realize that, that indeed, many of the techniques that they were using had applied science, that the formulas for making various uh, colors, paints, the pigments, the sources of those pigments coming from minerals and also from plants, and in other cases, insects like the cochineal. All of these began to open their perspective with regard to what science really is. 
part of their feelings, I'm sure, and, and this continues today among many indigenous people, is that there was nothing about them in the stories that they heard about science. It was all Western science, and it was all Western people, nothing about indigenous peoples. The thought and the, fo- and, and the notion that had been conveyed to them many times was that Indigenous people were not sophisticated, that they were ignorant, that they had no, no, no science, that they had no knowledge worth, um, worth uh, keeping uh, or worth uh, extending in any, short, in any sort of way. So on my part, I began to really, really understand my own issues, you know, with having attained a, a college degree in uh, Western science and biology and really began to remember that indeed the students were right, that in most science curriculums, there is no mention of indigenous people or uh, indigenous people's accomplishments, uh, that that silence uh, is, is deafening. And uh, in many ways, the students, I empathize with the students because I had also experienced the same kinds of frustration. Of course, I'm doing it in order to get my degree, but nonetheless becoming also very frustrated with the way that Western science had been taught to me. So I really understood the alienation, the, the sense of, of not being included, of, of being absent, actually, from, from the story of science. And so uh, bringing indigenous thought, indigenous perspective, indigenous story into the teaching of Western science, indigenous accomplishments in areas related to science really began to entice and, and encourage students to begin to explore not only their own cultural traditions of science, but even to consider becoming scientists themselves and certainly understanding that there was science in the production in all aspects of uh, art production. And so it was a kind of revelation, I guess you would say, on the part of students that I think really was very encouraging and very, very obvious in in contrast to their feelings about uh, the way science had been taught at the Institute in prior years. Thank you for sharing such an enlightening experience. And, And my next question is inspired by what you have shared. Colonial education around the globe has dehumanized and delegitimized non-European, non-white knowledge systems. Can you tell us a little bit more about how your work through the ages has tried to reverse this dehumanization? Well, first, I I should mention that uh, just to build on what I've said about what I was doing at the Institute of American Indian Arts, I, I changed my focus from becoming a field biologist to becoming a science teacher and really began to, to dig very deeply through research into the traditional forms of indigenous education, not only in North America, but actually all over the world. Uh, I began to look at the tremendous contributions that indigenous peoples have uh, made over millennia, you know, with regard to the human knowledge about uh, our environment, about living in our environment in sustainable ways. And so that began for me almost a quest to begin to explore more deeply and bring forward 
indigenous stories about science. And to do that, what I then began to do was, was really focus on the whole notion of creating curriculum in very creative and very culturally responsive ways. And so that put me into the framework of becoming a researcher of culturally responsive curriculum. And I really began to, to go deeply into that and really began to see how by creating and designing actually a curriculum for the outcome of giving students both the Western science concepts at the same time, allowing them to explore their own native histories of uh, science was a, a very, very powerful uh, tool that then for me began to broaden not only my perspective, but also the perspectives of students. And in doing this kind of work, of course, you begin to see that the, the Western curriculum essentially is itself a culturally responsive curriculum, but it's responding only to Western culture, Western tradition, Western history. It's not responding to other cultures, other traditions. As a matter of fact, it marginalizes them. And so part of the issues and part of my own frustration with uh, Western science and also the frustration I think the students were expressing was that feeling that they were not included in, in, in this rural science story. It is as if they didn't exist. And so that then began to really show in a very direct and deep way the impact of colonization, how colonization through the mechanism and tool of education, Western education, has in many ways been the tool for assimilation and really the destruction of many cultural traditions around the world. So along with learning about this vast history of Native science, uh, students then also began to ask, well, why were we never taught this? Why are we having to uh, research and find on our own this information when this information should have been a part of our education all along. And so that then allows the students to become critical thinkers with regard to the nuances of Western education. So there are a lot of different kinds of spinoffs that happen as a result of creating and implementing a culturally responsive curriculum of this nature. Students not only become enlightened about their own cultural traditions, they not only learn the Western science concepts, but then they ask, you know, critical questions that then lead to, to questions about cultural appropriation, that lead to questions about, about oppression, about political kinds of issues that have uh, subdued indigenous populations through time and through colonization. This actually then leads to an understanding of some of the causes and issues uh, that arise from racism, structural racism uh, in Western education. And really, I felt that the students uh, were going beyond, they were getting into the social context of education and, and, of their, uh, and of issues related to colonization. So in many ways, uh, students begin to, to go deeper into the learning that happened through these culturally relevant curriculums that I developed, they began to appreciate not only their own tradition, want to know more about their own tradition, but then they began to realize that they had to make some changes, you know, uh, with regard to um, informing their communities and also informing their own relatives with regard to 
these forms of oppression. And so I would say what emerged uh, from this teaching process uh, and this curriculum design was a much more comprehensive kind of educational process uh, that allowed students to become critical thinkers, creator, creative uh, problem solvers. It allowed them to, to have a deeper understanding uh, and profound respect for their own cultures and their own cultural traditions. But at the same time, access the skills and the kinds of information, the kinds of knowledge that they needed to survive in a contemporary society. So I felt that the students really grew as a result of uh, participating in these kinds of culturally responsive science curriculum. And school curricula reflects the dominant discriminatory structures that govern a nation's education system. And I'm sure that you have come across such school curricula as well. According to you, what are some of the ways in which the state distorts or even misappropriates the indigenous sciences across the globe? And how do you think they can do better? Well, I, I think that the whole process of exclusion of knowledge, certain kinds of knowledge is vetted and included in the curriculum and other kinds of knowledge is not. And unfortunately, the decisions that are made in that regard are political and many times extremely discriminatory. And so that one begins to see the knowledge that one receives in a Western educational context is limited in scope, that it is not inclusive. And that if it's taken at its face value without students being exposed to other forms of knowledge, other traditions of knowledge keeping, that they come out very, uh, come out of that system very uh, naive in many ways, and, and also very lacking in, in the knowledge many times of their own people, their own tr cultures, their own traditions, and at the same time really have a, a knowledge that is very focused on, uh, in many cases, just the material making of money without a real understanding that education is about creating a whole person. And so when, you know, you begin to study any indigenous tradition of education, what we'll call an indigenous epistemology, you'll find that they were always holistic. They were always about trying to create uh, complete human beings, human beings that were well-rounded. They were by nature holistic. I'll use a metaphor that I often use as I was researching very early on the curriculum uh, that I created at the Institute of American Indian Arts. I ran across a poem that was interpreted by a Nahuatl Indian philosopher and also professor at the University of Texas, Austin. His name was Miguel Leon Portillo. And he brought forward a, a concept of uh, finding face, finding heart finding foundation, which he had translated from one of the Nahuatl Indian poems that had survived the burning of the libraries in Mexico City after the Spanish had conquered Mexico City. And one of the poems was talking about what is it to be a person of knowledge in this context that Salit Samin, who are the professors of that day, the Aztec professors, bring forward this question to students 
in a college, the Kalmakak, as they were called. And uh, the question of the day was, what is it to be a person of knowledge? Now, these methods that were used by the Aztecs were uh, very similar to the Maui's and the Hawaiians. Uh, They were chanted poems. And so the professor chants this poem to the students. What is it to be a person of knowledge? And of course, there are verses that go with that. And then the students go off and then come back with a responsorial chant. And in that chant, they reflect on the fact that to be a person of knowledge, one must find one's face. And that means find your identity, find out who you are as a human being. Then find one's uh, heart, which is uh, that deep desire within you, that spirit that guides you and that moves you, that motivates you to come to know something that is important. And then one must find one's foundation, that upon which you can stand, a set of principles, uh, a profession, a teacher, an artist, a philosopher, whatever it may be, that allows you to most completely express your heart and your face. And all of this is in concentric rings, first of relationship, responsibility, and respect for yourself, yourself for your family, yourself for your clan, yourself for your place and tribe, and then finally yourself for the whole cosmos. Respect, relationship, and responsibility. And these concentric rings continue throughout one's life. And all of it is towards becoming complete as a man or as a woman. So that's an example of an indigenous epistemology. And as it turns out, all indigenous cultures have epistemologies, although they don't call it epistemologies. They they convey these forms of wisdom through story, through poetry, through chant, in a number of different kinds of ways. But they form what we would call epistemologies, which is really how do you come to know it in the context of your life, your people? your place. And when you begin to understand those traditional epistemologies and how they generated, how they created, and out of which emerged, uh, you know, very profound knowledge about how to live a, a human life, but also how to live life in respect, relationship, and responsibility to the place, to the community, to the cosmos. These kinds of traditions are traditions that are to become, to come forward again today in a contemporary expression, of course. But because we need these kinds of understandings, these kinds of perspectives, this kind of education, if we're going to face the kinds of challenges that are coming forward now with uh, regard to climate change, the, the challenges of social unrest. And so I feel that this is important, not only because it really highlights the important contributions that Indigenous people all over the world have made to the human knowledge system, but also because the forms of education, traditional forms of education, are so essential to resurge, to bring a resurgence of, to bring them back again to bring in some contemporary way, which will hopefully allow us to address these tremendous challenges that we face with climate change and, and the other issues that I've mentioned. Yeah. 
and talking about India, where according to the Anthropological Survey of India, there are around 461 tribal communities, out of which 174 were identified as subgroups. Is it possible to assimilate knowledge systems arising out of these tribal communities into the mainstream education? And if yes, then what are the alternatives to make such knowledge available? Uh, well, I, first of all, I, I say that it is possible through the research, design, and implementation of culturally responsive curriculum to take any tradition, any body of indigenous knowledge, and bring it forward in, in the ways that I've described. But I think the first step is really to acknowledge that indigenous communities hold important bodies of knowledge and to encourage them to bring about a resurgence of that knowledge within their own communities. Indigenous knowledge is, is very place-based, so it's very specific, usually to the places. It's developed over generations of a people, a group of people living in a place uh, for, for a long period of time. Whether that knowledge can be transferred, let's say, to another place, sometimes it can, sometimes it cannot. But what is important, and, and please remember this, that it is the principles that I've just described in, in the finding face, finding heart, finding foundation, that are important to begin to explore, to share, to bring forward into mainstream education. It is the principles. Knowledge appropriation also is an issue, and I think that many indigenous communities, because of the oppression and the impact of colonization, fear to share, to share certain kinds of knowledge outside of their community to keep it private. And I think that's fine. I think that is good. Uh, in, in some ways, there's a need to hold on to that knowledge, to hold it close to one's breast. But I don't think that there is a problem in sharing the principles behind that knowledge and, its, and, and the principles of education that are, are, that are so much in line with what we would call sustainable forms of knowledge that not only sustain, but actually that are wise systems of knowledge, that really the lessons to learn and to be learned are really in, in terms of the principles that are being applied and how they have been applied by Indigenous communities to secure their sustainability through time and through generations. So what I'm saying is that the principles, uh, the understandings, the perspectives of Indigenous people need to be respected and, and you know, brought forward in, in terms of what Indigenous peoples are willing to share. But at the same time, uh, I think that Indigenous people need to be given their uh, proper respect and due uh, with regard to that knowledge that is so important for them to continue their livelihood and to continue their traditions in the places in which they currently live. So two things. Uh, one, bring forward these principles, these gems of knowledge and wisdom about how to live a good life, how to sustain a sustainable life, bring that forward into mainstream education. But at the same time, Indigenous peoples can learn many skills that they can bring forward into their own traditions and into their own communities to help them sustain and survive through time. Sustainable community is an evolving process. 
So indigenous peoples have always been practicing sustainability, knowing that you adapt and you adopt practices, uh, knowledge systems as, as needed, as necessary to help you continue to sustain yourself. And I think that's no different today than it was in a thousand years ago. If there's a respectful exchange, if there's sincere, committed people working, you know, to build bridges between Indigenous people and, and mainstream people through the process of education, that it is, it is doable, it is possible. And certainly the technology, if you will, you call it that, but the methodology for doing culturally responsive uh, uh, teaching, uh, curriculum design and development and implementation uh, is worldwide. It's a research that is out there, can be learned and can be applied by anyone. Hmm. Yes, uh, very important points to underline here. And uh, according to you, Professor, how can various stakeholders ensure fostering a better understanding of traditional knowledge and strengthen Indigenous peoples' voices in educational settings? Well, uh, one of the techniques that I use, what I call deep dialogue. In, in most Indigenous communities that I'm aware of, when the people are facing issues that are important to the whole community, there is a, a community meeting in which people voice their concerns, they reflect on, on the issues at hand, they have dialogue and, and debate if necessary, but they come to some kind of consensus about how to move forward you know, collectively in addressing a particular kind of issue. And I know that this uh, certainly happens in the community meetings in India, as it happens here in the United States among indigenous peoples here. So for indigenous peoples, I think that we have to begin to encourage this deep dialogue first among indigenous peoples themselves, you know, with regard to, let's say, for example, what kind of knowledge, what kind of perspectives they wish to share with the outer society. At the same time, what kind of knowledge they need to be shared with them. So there's a, a bridge between the outside world and the world of the indigenous peoples themselves. And one of the best ways to do this is by creating the context of dialogue, where indigenous peoples have discussions among themselves, but also discussions with the key stakeholders, key policymakers, teachers, professors, curriculum designers that allow for a, a really deep sharing, if you will, of the needs, the aspirations of Indigenous people. But at the same time, that it's a learning process for those who are the policy makers, the administrators, the teachers to learn from Indigenous people, Indigenous community issues, and begin to see how there can be a, a coming together of those principles and knowledge that have been time-tested through generations. I'm calling, I think, for a dialogue, deep dialogue, as the foundation out of which curriculum designs, ideas can come, and then coming together uh, of indigenous communities with uh, educators to begin to co-create. Because in many ways, as I did at the Institute of American Indian Arts, I co-created these courses of study that I, I taught with my students. 
and I certainly think that is possible in other contexts and particularly in India as well. Yeah, I think uh, a dialogue is the first and basic step towards merging knowledge systems or even accommodating knowledge systems. Professor, in the recent years, the environmental concerns are being viewed differently, especially in the third world countries. Do you think that the contemporary education system uh, in third world countries can be inclusive of tribal knowledge systems? And if yes, how would it look like? Yes, you know, the integration of cultural knowledge and cultural perspective into mainstream education always changes the education process and also the whole education system. I think that, as I said earlier, that indigenous knowledge can support and even really extend much of Western knowledge, much of Western science, because it has an ethical value that is deeply embedded in proper and rightful relationship with the natural world. And helping to teach people, not only indigenous peoples, teaching Western peoples, but to teach everyone that this relationality is something that has to be valued and that we have responsibility to create a, a, a better world through creating a better environment in which we can live and let live. That becomes a, a quintessential point because it is ultimately a spiritual question in the sense that how we as human beings have evolved and developed to the point where we have had such a tremendous impact on the natural world, on its natural systems. And now we have to step back and take a long, hard, honest look at what we have done and begin to take immediate steps to correct those mistakes, those tragedies, and at the same time begin to develop a system of knowledge that once again is about relationship and respect and responsibility not only to the natural world, but also to each other. So I think that as the dialogues happen, and of course they're going to be different in every place, you know, and it's going to take committed uh, people on both sides of the spectrum. But I think as those di dialogues develop, what will emerge from that, and I know that this happens because I've seen it many times, uh, is that there are some very specific kinds of things that people begin to do that will have impact, you know, long-term impact in terms of changing our relationship to the environments and changing our relationships to each other. Because indigenous cultures around the world practice uh, an epistemology that is essentially relational. It's about relationship, relationship, relationship. And I think that's why indigenous people, in spite of the differences in our cultures and our traditions and our languages, we understand each other because we're coming from the same basic idea of relationship, responsibility, and respect for the natural world. And that gives us life. And I think that is the most important lesson to be conveyed and to be worked on with regard to changing education in a way that allows us to begin to bring forward that ethical value that was once there for all cultures, really 
with regard to the relationship to the natural world to bring it back into focus. Now, I have to say that this is happening all over the world already in many different kinds of ways in different contexts, but usually outside of the institutions. And it's really the educational institutions along with financial institutions, along with governmental institutions, uh, which have not been willing to share. On a positive note, have you come across unique developments across the globe to preserve and promote indigenous knowledge systems? Oh, uh, oh my goodness. <laughs> I have to say it is indigenous people that are leading this movement worldwide. Before the pandemic, uh, I had the opportunity to um, to visit Taiwan, and of course, you know, there's there's there have always been uh, indigenous people in Taiwan. There's uh, 15 recognized tribes of indigenous people in Taiwan, and and even more uh, that are not recognized. But there are you know various groups, and have always been for thousands of years, indigenous groups in Taiwan, and. I was so impressed to see that the Taiwanese indigenous people were taking were taking essentially major steps to really perpetuate the resurgence of their culture, uh, their traditions, their uh, language, and also their land stewardship, stewardship of the land, its resources, the sea and its resources in ways that, that I think are really amazing and also exemplary. But again, I have to say that what is going on in Taiwan is going on all over the indigenous world as indigenous people have really taken to task the need for sustaining themselves through time and through generation and through this climate crisis. And so there are really, I would say, as many examples as there are indigenous peoples, because I think Indigenous peoples have always felt the impact of colonization and now feeling the impact of climate change to a much larger extent than than other, let's say, mainstream peoples. And because of that, because of that sensitivity, they also have a, a sense for what is going to work for them and are finding ways politically, economically, and also educationally to really bring forward again the indigenous idea and and the indigenous epistemology of relationship. So I have great confidence in indigenous peoples doing this. But again, the issue is that nation states are still very resistant. The institutions, as I mentioned, uh, which are all uh, in some ways influenced by Western thought and Western philosophy of economics that they have to begin to really consider the changes that need to be made in their own countries. And to begin to follow the examples, the many examples that indigenous peoples are providing. We've always existed in the margins. And and so real active assertions or reassertions of indigenous thought, indigenous perspective is, is also happening in the margins. And the importance now, I think, is to bring what has been happening in the margins more towards the center, make it global. I I just uh, want to thank you for this opportunity to share these ideas, these perspectives with you. I've written many books and I think I'm accessible through the internet, through Google, 
But I really want to encourage everyone to begin to think about this question. And the question is, what kind of ancestor do you want to be? What kind of ancestor do you want to be? Because that question brings forward all of what I've said and and then more with regard to the kind of legacy we want to leave our children and our grandchildren. Because ultimately, sustainability and sustainable community is really about the future generations and the world that we leave to them. And so that is the question I think that we must honestly, with our face, with our heart, and with our foundation, answer. Very crucial question, actually. Thank you, Greg, for coming in and answering to all our questions. We, we really commend the work that you've done in the past and you still continue doing it. So, so thank you. Thanks a lot for being here. And again, thank you uh, very much, very deeply. As we say, which means thank you deeply for this opportunity to share my thoughts across the globe. My best wishes to, to all the people of India. And, and especially to the indigenous peoples of India as we move forward together uh, to try to find to, an answer to that question, what kind of ancestors do we want to be? Yeah.